Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. All right, welcome to this episode of X Chateau. This is our year-end wrap-up where you're just getting Peter and myself, and we're just going to go through our list of things we covered throughout the year. Peter, just you and I. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're going to have to keep everyone's attention. But, <laughs> but we did have a pretty, pretty interesting lineup, and I think I learned a lot with all our interviews in 2023. I mean, we started out with Sustainability, which was a big eight-part series that had everyone from Drew Bledsoe uh, in his Washington wineries to Silver Oak CEO David Duncan and everything from the U.S. to Spain to Bordeaux. So that covered quite a big swath of the sustainability landscape. Yeah, that was a lot of effort. That was the first time we did something so large. And I think trying to get one or two of these big series ideas is a good model for us. And I think that was a kind of evolution of how we're kind of developing this podcast. We also switched to, to releasing twice a week or every two weeks, sorry. And I think that makes it more sustainable for us as well, since we both have day jobs. So uh, yeah, I thought that putting that together, you know, working with different companies to kind of source the right thing and having different categories based on an earlier episode we did to do the breakdown and we kind of like slotted in companies that are going to speak about different areas of sustainability. That was a brilliant idea. And I'm going to give, that's all you, in terms of this, this idea for this series. I thought that was great. And I think we got through, tried to really get a, not just a North American focus or a US focused interview candidates to cover these topics. It was kind of cool to see uh, people from different parts of the world. And I think it ended up being very on theme for 2023 because sustainability, we just wrapped COP28, right? Globally with climate agreements uh, across the world. And sustainability has been and continues to be an important element of not just wine, but of the world in general. And so I think that, yeah, we started off the year right there. Yeah. And and, I mean, that's, it's a trend that's not really going away anytime soon. It it seems to be prevailing in terms of people want to know where the things that they're consuming are coming from, especially at these price points. And some other themes we had this year, we definitely uh, did a couple episodes on the state of the wine collector, given the macroeconomic changes and volatility that we've been having with interest rates and inflation and all that kind of stuff, getting a pulse of what wine collectors are doing differently in terms of buying habits this year, both uh, with returning guests. Charlie Fu in LA and John Jackson in Dallas. Yeah. I mean, this is something we may want to check in on on a regular basis. Obviously, I think we'll cover this a little bit later on, but you know, prices seem to keep going up and up and up. And at some point, if your spare cash flow dedicated to wine purchasing doesn't keep going up and up, you have to make some calls. And it was interesting to hear from how people are dealing with that and how, how they're making some choices. It'd be interesting to see how that changes over the next year or so. And we'll talk about this later if you talk about what happened in wine in the year, but everything has stopped going up and up and up this year. Then one of the other themes I think we had was digging into non sort of regional bodies or government sponsored organizations that promote wine, like the VDP in Germany and Gran Pagos de España in Spain, as a different sort of method of wineries coming together, not even within the same region to promote their wines and really differentiate themselves. And both of those organizations have done tremendous jobs over the last two decades or so. Yeah, I mean, definitely like the VDP. I mean, Grand Pagos España is a little bit kind of started in one area and kind of expanded out. I think VDP is really like, it is a hallmark of quality for people that are purchasing German wine or, or in Germany. It's, it seems like they've done it right for sure. And I think it's a really interesting model for other people to follow. 
And it's interesting because it's like it's like self-forming groups almost, right? It's almost like unionization of quality, right? And so it's like we're we're gonna do this thing and we're gonna bring people together and find like-minded people and we're gonna follow these, you know, roughly rules and update them as we go in order to differentiate as a response to the market of like, well, the market, the government organization isn't doing this thing for me, so we're gonna do it for ourselves. And it really kind of helps call out that premiumization that a lot of those producers in both Grampagos and, and VDP, you know, represent. And it was interesting to really dig in there because this was something that, you know, when I worked at Costa Brown, we talked about, is this possible? Is this something we could do for like California Pinot Noir or something like that? Right. And, you know, in the end it was like, that's too hard to hurt all the cats, right? It's a lot of work too many to hurt all the cats. And so, yeah. And for the VDP to have done it for, I think a hundred years, right. Or 120 years or something like that. That's an amazing accomplishment. And Germany might be a little easier than, than the U.S. in terms of our individualism. But what they've done and what they've done even in the last 20 years with the Grosskevox classification has been impressive. Yeah, for sure. And especially since, you know, if you think about it, the grand scheme of things, they had more stringent rules before the, the 1971 wine law in Germany. And so the fact that they've been able to keep it fresh where I don't think anybody would argue that any of the government regional things keep their things fresh enough. It's a little, they're, they're fairly static. I mean, look at Bordeaux. So, you know, it's, it's interesting that they've been able to refresh it and revise and keep, you know, flowing. They basically lose and gain roughly the same number of members every year because they're kind of always changing things. And for, and it's usually around generational change. And I thought, yeah, it's really impressive and a great model. I'd love if other places started doing that or if local places started doing that inside the U S that'd be amazing. And then I, you know, I think it makes sense to kind of, discuss 2023 itself as a year and what's been happening in the world of wine, both in general and then its impact on the world of wine. Because I think 2023 was the first time where we're clearly post-COVID. Like, I don't see masks anywhere anymore, pretty much on airplanes or anything. I mean, a little bit more in San Francisco and the Bay Area, but around the world, definitely nothing. And one of those big themes coming out of that is the whole revenge travel yes. thing that was denominated as or named as revenge travel and, and, and also the move back to in-person and the offices, you know, less so in the Bay Area, but, but globally, a lot of people are back in their offices. And that has a big impact on delivering wine and certainly the traveling, reducing visitors to wine country within the U.S. as many Americans, including our, ourselves to some degree, were abroad at times of the year and more than in the last few years. And so they're not buying wine at home to to stock up and, and drink as much. And so that, that definitely took a hit on the wine industry. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I'm, I'm sure it benefited the industry as well, but I don't think anything went back to just normal, just speaking locally when we, we go up to Napa. Like, there's not really a drop-in winery anymore these days. Everything is booked by appointment for the most part. It's kind of the the norm these days, obviously the higher end was always like that, but yeah. So I'm wondering how much the tourism part is offsetting some of those impacts and maybe wine clubs for these wineries are growing. And I'd love to see if there were some stats there, but clearly people are traveling. Hopefully they're traveling to wine regions as well. Yeah. From what I've heard from wineries, uh, you know, across the country is that tourism was definitely down in general. I think we saw it a lot in the Pacific data out of the Pacific Northwest as well. And so a lot of the like Oregon and Washington wineries took a hit because some of the data from articles say that about 33% of U.S. households went on vacation, which was the highest level, like an international vacation, which is the highest level since 2015. And that, you know, 83% of Americans will travel by the end of the year. That's a, that's a pretty big percentage. And all that has led to, you know, less 
people buying wine and especially less people buying wine online. I think we've seen a number and not just from this, but other issues included that led to these failures, but a few online retailer issues with underground seller going under in April 2023. And we actually interviewed the CEO and the the next CEO who was the COO at the time a while back, I think in episode 83. And it was an interesting concept, but you know, for whatever reasons, uh, it didn't work out. And Psalm Select in July, that was more 2022, July 2022. And Wink, the company that has its own wine club, uh, went bankrupt in November 2022, just a year after actually going public. And many others, we've heard almost every other major online wine retailer was back to 2019 or even lower levels of sales. And so they had this big run up in COVID and then it retrenched even more than that what would be considered normal. Yeah, I mean, definitely that's more about purchasing behavior than just delivery issues, right? So, I mean, I think that people assumed that those during pandemic levels would try to stay consistent. I mean, I think that might have been flow, but like, I definitely think there are people are getting a lot more wine. They're looking for online resources, but there was just too many. They could This just could be as too many choices of where to buy from and the, and the winners win and the losers, you know, went bankrupt. Beyond just online, even brick and mortar had some issues. And again, some of this is, not related to the economy overall, but it's when things are going great, it hides a lot of bad business practices and other things, right? So uh, in New York, Sherry Lehman had a FBI raid and accused of missing bottles or misappropriating things. And more recently, the Chelsea Wine Storage has been accused of similar similar things. So a lot of, I think, problems that are happening in the wine world around retail and storage and things that make people and collectors nervous because like if I'm uh, buying wine online and there's a new online retailer that pops up, I'm going to be a little bit more careful having known about what happened with some of these other companies like Underground Cellar where you can't get your wine out or Chelsea Wine Stores where you can't get their wine out and think about, you know, the reputation to your point of are these guys going to be around? Are they solid? Although Sherry Lehman sort of yeah. even counter to that. <laughs> Have my wine at home, I guess, in my basement. <laughs> my personal, you know, take on it is I vote is like buying wine as a relationship and, and especially the, the wines that I like to drink. I try to focus my money in purchasing with specific uh, retailers in order to build, you know, a reputation so that when they have limited availability that I can still get them. And I think reputation matters. Obviously, Sherry Lehman's a counterpoint to that because they have a great, they had a great reputation. But a lot of those other names that we mentioned were relatively new entrants to the space. So it's kind of hard to build that credibility where what I was happy to see is I do think a lot of traditional brick and mortar retailers upped their game during the pandemic and have now, you know, fully entrenched in the online inventory so that you can see a little bit more. You can, you don't, you can, you can know what they have before you go to the store or you can just email them and say, Hey, I saw you had this, this, and this, I want that and get it online and I'll pick it up from the store or send it to me or whatever. I think that the traditional retailer, a lot of them have really improved their processes around inventory management and sharing and communicating with their customers where a lot of times it used to be a in-person thing. And a case in point of that to preview one of the, the first episodes coming out next year is the Albertson Safeway Company, which has done a lot to during the pandemic and in investing in their online presence and pickup and their new product, uh, Vine and Cellar, which we'll be talking about with Curtis Mann again, who's the head of alcohol for the, those companies. 
So outside of that kind of post-COVID element and related to the post-COVID element is a huge surge in inflation globally, which led to interest rates going up a lot, especially in the U.S., but all around the world, which was trying to contract the economy so that things weren't as inflating as they would otherwise be, and how that's starting to impact the wine market. How have you seen the uh, inflation economic slowdown impact the wine market? Well, I mean, I think at one level, it's people are concerned about a recession and are maybe being a little bit preemptively cautious because it was all people were talking about and honestly are still talking about, and even though that we now got relatively good news in the last week or so, that we are gently landing the plane in the U.S. I can't speak to inflation globally, but, you know, Inflation in the U.S. for now, at the end of this, just, you know, seems to be coming down and we might start to see some interest rates coming down in 2024, you know, fingers crossed for anybody who wants to buy a home. Um, so, so <laughs> but, I, but I definitely think that there was a lot of fear from people and it rippled into businesses as well. And so even if people had cash, they were maybe sitting on it and waiting and seeing because this impending doom potentially that was going to hit them and they wanted to be ready with cash in case they needed it. And so they were taking out of equities they were taking out of like disposable income buckets and, you know, and, and things like that. So, and I think that companies were doing the same thing in terms of pulling back and the supply chains are finally getting fixed, but they're not fully fixed all the, all across the board. And so costs are still going up and, and we did see labor go up a lot too. And so that that's making, that's, that's some of the rationale, but there's a little bit more to it than, you know, it's also, you know, we'll cover that in a second, I guess, but uh, yeah, it's all related. And to your point that, you know, costs were going up and, and labor and wages were going up, but with the higher interest rates and all that fear, a lot of people are actually getting laid off Yeah, as well. So that's creating a lot of uncertainty and especially for us in the Bay area in San Francisco, a lot of tech companies were laying people off earlier in the year, and that certainly would impact their wine buying without a steady income and the prospects of jobs, new jobs at higher pay, which would seem like a given the last few years, being more diminished. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's almost a direct correlation for, hey, the, I have to pay my the, my good talent more money. And therefore, I have to lay off the not so great talent. So I think it was a little bit of a house cleaning that those companies used inflation as the rationale for it. Because honestly, most of those companies have are very cash rich and their stocks have done fairly well this year, especially in the run up in the last uh, couple of months. But it, they've leveraged the inflation impending doom to clean house. Uh, but then at the same time, they can also help to justify pay the wages for fewer employees better to give them more money. It's it. You know, some there's politics there. I think that uh, whether or not those are direct impacts to things that were actually impacting their bottom line is to be seen. And LiveX has put out some data for the year saying that all their major indices are down double digits, which is a, a first in a long time, right? We've had all we interviewed was it last year, I believe, last year. many wine investment companies who you know purported to its non correlation with the market, the the wine that is fine wine and collectible wine. And how it, it you know goes up, 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 and up, basically. But this year there was a bit of a pullback, and particularly around Burgundy and Champagne being down, and a flight to quality. So even people are buying less of the more marginal names and sticking with the the core elements. And Bordeaux benefited because Bordeaux sort of being more value in that fine wine market after not not that prices have really gone down that much in Bordeaux, but the fact that Burgundy and Champagne had just taken off. Or the last few years, and Napa to some degree too has also gotten quite expensive. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that the prices of some of the Burgundy producers still went up quite a bit, and but people were willing, much less willing to take bets 
on on things if they didn't need it because to to compensate for those. But then there was also supply issues with Burgundy as well, which kind of compensated for like, hey, I'm not going to have as much, therefore I can justify some of those. But overall, there was you know there was less of it to go around for in 2023. In wine in general, definitely had increases in pricing. And often due to or the explanation rationale being in inflation being a part of it, both for the components of wine, fruit, glass, corks, etc., and labor, labor costs going up as well, especially in the U.S. Labor is extremely tight and vineyards are competing with marijuana places or marijuana farms. I'm not sure what that's called and everything else to get labor. And so that's gotten a lot more expensive. And so wineries are continuing to take price up and up. And I think that hits both the high end, but also even on the lower end, you know, a lot of people are saying that, you know, there's a trading up happening part. And I I don't know the actual data behind this, but I think part of it is some of those bottles of wine that were in a lower cat price category for like a Nielsen scan data, which is, you know, very small price categories, like zero to five and like, you know, five to 10 or whatnot are actually going up. Cause you look at something like a Lamarca, which I remember, 10, 15 years ago being sub $10 a bottle. I think the retail price is like $17 or $18 a bottle, right? Uh, There's some discounting, but that's now moved into a different category. And so that's, I think that's at least part of the premiumization that's been happening in wine is just pricing is going up. Yeah, actually, there's multiple times this year where I was like, wait, this cost how much? And I was like, wow. I remember, yeah, LaMarca was the one I was thinking about as well, but there's also some like kind of like benchmark brands like, wow, that's up like, 50% 50% from where it was, if it go going from 10 to $15, like it, it all of a sudden switches in a new category. And I get that people may not realize that they're just like, oh, it's inflation. And they're just kind of like going with it. But that may, that might be premiumization. But at that point, you're like, do I then go down a tier and back to where I was when I was really familiar with this brand? I don't know, especially for those like kind of lower tier price points. It's a, uh, it's a thing, but even, on, even on some of the, the like champagne staples, like look at Veuve Clicquot and stuff like that. I, like, I saw that price recently. I was like, wait, this costs how much? <laughs> it's like, it's like, this doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> it's like, I was like, why is this? And then I go look at like $20 more and I get a grower champagne. Like, and so I'm just, I'm just really surprised by why are some of these things going up so much? And that brings up the perennial question for wineries in terms of their pricing strategy, right? Which is, is it better to go up little by little every year or every other year or whatever, or have these big shots and go up all at once. And as I was doing some research around that, I found an interesting Wine Berserkers poll that showed uh, 68% of collectors, or at least people who responded to that poll, would rather have smaller price increases more frequently than big ones. Even though I think technically from like, you know, a finance perspective, it, assuming, you know, the nominal dollars were not the same, it's, you probably actually spend less money if it's a big one later, right? Many years later because sure. of the time value of money. But I, I agree with that. I think it's less noticeable. It's so noticeable, especially if you move to some of the past some of the psychological barriers, like going from double digits to triple digits or to breaking the 300 mark where, you know, now you're going from just a really great wine to like something that has to be iconic and collectible if you're going to be 300 plus. And, you know, I, I think I don't, I don't know if wineries fully think through that as they're making some of those decisions. Yeah, I, I'm, yeah. I mean, I think that a lot of them are doing benchmarking of what are their competitors. I think I think it goes back to some of the stuff that you always talk about in terms of what does price communicate about your wine brand? And they're like, well, we're we're no longer a $250 wine, we're a $300 wine. And therefore, we're more swanky. 
yes, but if you lose people along the way, because I will tell you, there are wines I have been purchasing for many, many years that I just didn't purchase this year. I was just like, this is ridiculous. It's like, I can find, is it worth that much for me? Same. Got to make calls. I mean, one of the most surprising stats to me, and I knew consumption was down, but was the consumption of wine in China. We're, we're back in 2022 to something like 1996 levels because it peaked. And the peak was in actually 2017, so pre-pandemic, at close to like 20 million hectoliters. But it's only about nine in 2022 because China was poised to become the top wine consumer in the world. I mean, they have a lot more people than we do, right? Like over three times the number of people is in the U.S., but now it's dropped all the way to number eight globally. And part of that is the pandemic and coming out of it, and they're a little slow coming out of it. And the U.S. is the number one at 34 million hectoliters consumed. So we're still the, the biggest market. But that, and, and you'd have a lot of, I think, insight onto this, having lived in China for, for a while and understanding their drinking patterns. But that was that was surprising to me that it dropped that dramatically and that fast. Yeah, I believe I'm just was quickly googling. They do have a larger Gen Z population. The generally the population is younger than ours is, and so that it's like seven or eight, like it's like twenty seven percent, where the U.S. is around twenty percent. Again, a quick Google, so I I'm not using the same data source for each. I wonder if there's some of that trend about that we're seeing with people in the U.S. in terms of their like what they're drinking and how much they're drinking. If that's Maybe more of instead of a, being a, a localized to a North America habit is that that's actually rippling globally in terms of is fitness and health and things like that become kind of uh, everywhere issues. Well, that's the third big trend, I think, of 2023, which I do believe it's global, but it's the health and wellness push globally, particularly with younger generations, the millennial and Gen Z populations drinking less because of that, you know, coupled with. Places like the World Health Organization saying no alcohol is good for you at all, right? Like just releasing a statement at the beginning of the year, January 2023, that zero, like abstinence is the only way to go for your health. And, you know, that's a very influential and very important organization to, to say that. Yeah, there's other alternatives, right, to partaking in things that may be perceived as healthier. Wasn't there a, a debunking of some of the French paradox to some extent that it wasn't mm-hmm. that restaurant, you could take a ton of it. It doesn't really make that much of a difference. It was a study that was done this year. I think it was that the French paradox study was not perfect. Sure. <laughs> it was not great. I think there is still a correlation between moderate, moderate is still very moderate, drinking of red wine and like heart benefits. Like but it's not Revestrol that is the silver bullet. It. Like that, I think that, that that's what that study right. update was that that you can pull that out and just take that. That doesn't, that they've done studies against that and it hasn't shown to do anything. Yep. We talked a little bit about cannabis, but cannabis, even mushrooms are becoming still technically illegal, I think, but like a thing with psilocybin being used for like mental health and, and things like that. And then kombuchas and all sorts of different non-alcohol or products, lower alcohol low, no. too, right? It's yep. like, it's a legit, and we've talked about low and no alcohol wines, but let's be honest, like the low or no alcohol wines are not as good as the alternatives in terms of no alcohol beer and no alcohol spirits, which are 
dialed in to be very much closer replicants of their alcohol parallels than, than what we find in wine. It just isn't the same thing. And it's just the, it, part of it's the, the complex nature of what's happening in a wine that I think once you start stripping away the alcohol, which is, you know, kind of a structural component, you lose a lot of the flavor and a lot of the aromatics that a lot of us like about it. So I don't think it's that the technology or the solution there is quite there yet uh, to satisfy that. Yeah. Cause drinking is now more about taste and experience than getting drunk. I, I remember in college, you know, having like emptying out half a two liter of seven up, I think, and filling the rest with like Southern comfort. Right. <laughs> and like going out with my college buddies and like, you know, falling into the bushes on the side of the street, right. Like <laughs> at Berkeley. And I think the younger generations, they've grown up with technology and like cameras everywhere and all sorts of different things and the whole cancel culture. And if you do something stupid in public, that's going to be, you know, saved <laughs> and reported on and in social media. And so like, for me, it's like funny stories I can tell, but no one has any proof or you know knowledge of it. No one's rewatching it millions of yeah, times. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm not becoming a meme, right? But today and young people growing up today, that's completely different. And I, I think the culture around alcohol is more towards the experience and, and the flavor profile than it is like getting drunk. Right. And, and I mean, I think the desire, I think, I mean, seltzers are still a thing, right? So, you know, you, you see people's holiday parties, a lot of white claws still, it's like, sadly, but it's still there, but people like them. And some stats for our MW students, of course, is that there's a Forbes article that said Gen Z's are drinking 20% less than millennials, even who drink less than prior generations. And that there's a University of Michigan study that said college age drinkers who didn't drink at all, so abstainers, went from 20% to 28% in the last 20 years. I think that was 2020, so something like 2000 to 2020. That's you know almost a 50% increase in the people who don't drink at all. So that's a big change, although I, I've also seen different TikToks and other things anecdotally that said, hey, we're still drinking, right? Like, don't ignore us. We're still definitely drinking. I wonder how many of those are actually delineating between the types of alcohol is a little bit better because that's that article is specifically around alcohol in general, not not necessarily wine specifically. Marketing to the different generations is still a, an art form that hasn't been completely dialed in, where I think it is better on the spirits and beer side. Again, it's fewer larger companies in that regard or, or mi- micro companies that can, you know, have a local audience. And that's where, like, I think we should wrap up 2023 thinking about is wine part of the good life versus part of just getting drunk, right? And our last episode with Amanda McCrossan and the Wine Access Unfiltered podcast really delve into that concept of wine creating these memories and creating these experiences and even getting the comedian Burke Kreischer to, to cry, I believe, right, over during the podcast about his some of his memories associated with wine. And that's where wine can be, particularly fine wine, because I think you have like the commercial wines, which, you know, created the term wino, right? <laughs> In terms of like people who are very drunk to like, uh, that's, that's very different than I think the purpose of beer and spirits, which outside of like some cocktails, but can be more associated or more intent with getting drunk versus the the flavor and the experience profile. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting because there's a lot of cultures where it's, it's kind of ingrained in the gastronomic pairing with food. And, and I don't mean pairing like some pairing at a restaurant. I mean, just things naturally go together with, with it certain is types food, of, it is right? food, right? It, it is, yeah. it is a consumable that, that kind of is meant to go together. And it's like, ah, I can't tolerate this like 
risotto with all this cream and cheese and I need something to cut it, right? And so that, that they have to go together. It's just like oil and vinegar kind of thing. And I think that's the, the Italians call it the holy trinity, right? Of, of the good life, cheese, wine, and bread. I think are the, the necessary staples for them as, as part of life. Yeah, I mean, it's, and I definitely think when you talk to the foodies, like it doesn't seem like there's a whole bunch of I don't drink or I don't drink good wine, but I think the the volume of drinking and selective drinking and maybe the number of days in a week you're drinking is dramatically changing. And it's like, okay, we're going to go do this thing and, and we're going to have good wine. And so that's also going to change your buying behaviors as well. And I've definitely experienced that myself. I don't drink as much and as frequently as I used to, but I try to drink better for the most part. Yeah. And I will say for me, like I, my wife is on this crazy health kick, which is like second year running. It's like, I'm just trying to keep up with her and, and my kids for that matter. So it's like, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta step up or get left behind with them. So yeah, I'm finding that I'm drinking less as well, but I, when I do drink, I want quality. So maybe, you know, we should talk about what our favorite episode is of the year just to, to cap that off. What was your favorite episode of the year? Yeah, it's a good one. Again, not as many episodes this year as there were in the previous years because we switched it every two weeks, releasing episodes. You know, I really, in that series, I really liked the Silver Oak interview with uh, David Duncan. I thought they had some really great examples of what, like real ROI that they're doing on uh, energy efficiency for the winery. And I thought that was like really telling I always enjoyed talking to William Kelly in, in his two-part series on, on Bordeaux. I just find him, you know, a great conversationalist and also super knowledgeable, and we can go in lots of different directions. I always learn a lot when I talk with him, so I, I appreciate that. And then uh, the one that was a surprising was when we, when, when we were talking to Tastry about AI in the wine industry, and I was like, ah, is this going to be some high, you know, gloss over? I'm going to use some fancy jargon and really, like talk about machine learning and artificial intelligence and what it could do for wine. And, and like, is this like a marketing spiel or is this actually, and it was like, I was actually really impressed by the depth that she went into, but also the fact that there's so many consumers using it and her, the real examples that were provided about how, you know, larger wineries are using it to kind of like uh, with their production or understanding, like, what is this harvest giving them and how is that going to differ from maybe what they've delivered for consumers in previous years? I thought it was, there was real tangible examples that I thought made me think, okay, AI and, and wine can can work. I don't think there's going to be a ton of players in that space, but uh, like there, there were some great examples there that I thought were um, really interesting. Yeah, I think she said it, it was like four years of research before they even launched commercially a couple of years ago. But yeah, that, that was an interesting one. I really enjoyed talking to Richard Hanauer of the Lettuce Entertain You Group, which is RPM Steak and a bunch, like hundreds of restaurants, I believe, based at a Chicago. He really has a passion for hospitality and what that means. And I think they're doing really interesting things with the Oakville grill and cellar concept in Chicago. I, next time I'm there, I hope, uh, hope to go visit it and, and check it out because it seemed really fascinating. And, and I think on trend to be very elevated service, very elevated food, but not very elevated atmosphere, but not stuffy, yeah. right? But more down to earth. And I think that's a, a trend that's happening a lot with luxury, with luxury hospitality. I found it really fascinating to talk to John Jackson in Dallas about the state of the wine collector again, mostly because I had no idea about the different ways that, you know, the Dallas wine market worked and how his, you know, his group of collectors think about and, and, and buy wine, particularly because I knew he was part of like a wine club and, you know, venue and location, but I didn't understand how deep that was ingrained in the culture there. And that, that was really fascinating. But, but I think my favorite was still Kyle McLaughlin, the actor who has a pursued by bear brand in Washington. Cause Understanding his take on navigating 
the wine world as a celebrity and the challenges associated with that, both the benefits and the challenges. But then just, you know, the familiarity and sort of like calming influence of his voice was also, <laughs> I think, attractive as a part of that episode that was my favorite. I guarantee his wife is like, just talk to me while I fall asleep. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> like, but no I, I, no, I was actually impressed that it's he's not just slapping his name on something that he's like heavily involved. He's doing the marketing, but he's like the whole experience is basically like you're experiencing him. Right. And I think that uh, I, I thought that was interesting. And I will say the same thing even for uh, Drew Bledsoe when we did for the sustainability, like mm-hmm. he wasn't just deferring to someone like he, and he's not just the face of the face on it. Like he was actually, he's like, I'm from here. Like, like he's in this business and he was, he was speaking in detail about that. And so I, I you know, I respect anybody who jumps into, you know, learning a whole nother career basically to figure it out. Cause I think both of those people are great examples of people who are celebrities, but are also wine people now. And part of turning the year, we're also going to be changing our wrap up question in 2024. So look out for that. Hopefully that keeps things fresh and interesting for you all. Yeah. No spoilers. Though. No spoilers. <laughs> all right. Well, we want to thank you all for listening. You can Always find information and contacts for us in the show notes. And we're going to do a few series in uh, 2024. But if you have ideas or things that you either a single episode or a series of episode, please hit us up. We get hit up all the time for episode ideas, you know, some good, some bad. But you can always ask. We're we're really interested in knowing what our listeners really want to hear from us. And so um, please feel free to reach out. Happy New Year, everybody. Happy Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of Egg Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers.